This morning, the lava flow from Mauna Loa is just under two miles from the Daniel K. Inouye Highway. We do have Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth live on the phone with us for the very latest. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. So I understand uh, that uh, you had some stern words this morning. <laughs> you, you, uh, we've got some people that are disrespecting uh, the lava viewing area. Well, I mean, it's just disrespectful out there in, in particular. We had some people who, I guess, hiked out, which, you know, we're telling people not to do. They, they are trespassing. Um, and, and, and then they're doing things like, you know, putting marshmallows up by the, up by the lava is what we heard. Um, we've seen some people who have been leaving their trash. And, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really disrespectable, um, you know, in itself. But, you know, a lot of people consider Madame Pele a part of their family. And, uh, you know, it's disrespectful for the culture. It's disrespectful for the land. And it's disrespectful for the people of Hawaii that, you know, go there to see you know, a beautiful sight, and then what do they do is they, they, they leave trash out there. That's, you know, that's terrible. Well, you know, we know that uh, this week um, you have the support from the National Guard, the Guard troops that are helping, to, you know, to keep people safe, right, to, to keep Absolutely. that area clear. Right. So we, we, we actually have a lot of uh, partners that are helping uh, from the state side, from the federal side. Our National Guard is helping. Uh, we got some people from Maui. So a big uh, shout out and thanks to uh, the people of Maui and uh, Mayor Mike Victorino for allowing uh, them to send support uh, to our, our civil defense from their civil defense. So we're, you know, a lot of people out there. It's uh, an amazing scene to see. Um, but, you know, it's still takes a lot of work to make sure that we're keeping people safe. You know, if we're under two miles from the highway and, you know, we are moving into the weekend, you're, you know, I know you've been asked a million times, like, when will you close the highway, you know, at, at what point? But you just don't know at this point, right? There's too many variables. Too many variables. And I, I heard uh, USGS on the, the, the morning talk saying that we had another, I guess, overflow, which is creating another little path, which actually may be a really good thing because that may mean that less uh, lava is flowing into the, the front edge. Um, we did see that the lava kind of slowed a little bit. We were at, I think, 68 feet uh, an hour yesterday, and we're down to 25 feet an hour today. So um, it's, you know, like the lava, uh, pardon the pun, it's a very fluid situation um, that we have out here. And there's, you know, a lot of things to take into consideration, a lot of variables. Um, when it hits the highway, if it hits the highway, um, how long it will take us to prepare for that, uh, what people are doing, that the safety of people is our number one priority. And so if we have people that are breaking the rules and going out there, um, that may be something that causes us to close the road a, a lot sooner um, because it takes time to go find people if we have to do that. And we have been given the gift of time since this eruption happened. You know, that allows all you folks to do the planning necessary to make sure that we've got, you know, the supplies, the fuel, um, you know, enough for 30 days, you know, because we don't know once the road is closed off how long it will remain that way. Yeah, I, th I think that we have been very fortunate in so many different ways. You know, when we got the call um, that first night, we were just watching what was happening and just really hoping and praying that it didn't go towards, uh, like, Ocean View, where it could have only been hours from the, the summit to the ocean. Um, so it went down towards the saddle, which, you know, is a good thing because we knew that would give us time. 
and then the route it took up the the saddle uh, was a route that really wasn't heading towards Hilo or towards uh, Kona. It was kind of heading down toward the middle. And so a lot of very fortunate things. We had um, some amazing views. Uh, Another really fortunate thing is that we were able to, within one day, work with partners to open up uh, traffic hazard mitigation. open up a traffic hazard mitigation route, so that's a mouthful, um, where people could safely actually see the lava, um, pull off to the side of the road safely, and uh, protect people from, you know, things that, bad things that could have happened on the highway. You know, first couple of nights we were up there, um, we saw cars driving at 60 miles an hour and people getting out of their cars and kids even up there um, right next to the highway. Um, that was a recipe for disaster, and uh, you know we averted that disaster. Um, we've had great partnerships that, you know, I, I think um, having started work on this, not when it happened, but months in, in advance, um, really has paid dividends. You know, you think about the traffic hazard mitigation route. That's a route that's not owned by the county. It actually has the federal government with PTA. It has uh, state DLNR and Hawaiian Homelands, so you, you've got a couple of different entities. Plus, you have you know state DOT that played a role, and so within one day, for all of those entities to come together and to come up with a, a plan for a viewing that, or an area where people can travel safely, and and uh, it's pretty amazing that 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 was able to happen. I just feel very fortunate to have been a part our you know parks department our um, public works even though it's not our roads we said hey let's let's make this happen and uh, those guys went out there they did the work and uh, you know people have been thanking them we, we've had uh, citizens emergency response teams our certs who you know last uh, lava event donated over five thousand hours of volunteer time they're, they're up there and, and they're assisting us um, so we're not it we're part of it um, but we're really proud to be part of everything that's happening and and uh, you know it's completely safe at this time well you know one of our listeners was concerned about uh, uh, our rubbish you know if the roads cut off you know what about all the trucks that, that bring you know the waste from the west uh, the east side over to the west side so what's the county's plan for that so we've actually been working with not just our Department of Environmental Management, but uh, our Mass Transit and other a- agencies, and we've asked them all to come up with alternate plans. And so I, I think <laughs> the last time I heard, um, Department of Environmental Management had about six different plans. Um, I think uh, there's conversations with the union because there's, there's union uh, issues there. Um, and. and I was actually fortunate. I, I went to an event this weekend with our UPW uh, taking care of some of our foster kids for Catholic Charities, had a chance to talk to the leadership of uh, UPW, who just did an amazing event. And, you know, they're willing to talk to work with us. Um, you know, it's, it's really great when you have people that want to do the best they can to make sure that our community has the best they can have. All right, so we'll just have to see then, uh, you know, how that all plays out. But is there enough capacity over on the Hilo side? Well, what we, you know, we'll probably have to take rubbish down the Kamakua coast, which is not optimal. 
Um, but it, it's what we have to do. And if the the, uh, the lava hits the highway, it's still not there yet. Um, and every day is is another day that gets us closer to the end of this flow. And you know, we, we know from past events they generally outlast anywhere between two and three weeks. I mean, we've had events where they've gone for a day and events where they've gone for a year, but the average is about two or three weeks. And so um, we're, we're not there. We're into our second week, and um, it's still a mile and a eight mile point eight. Uh, 1.8 miles away, so we're hopeful that it doesn't get there and we don't have to go to other uh, other routes. Okay. But that being said, we're planning for the worst and hoping for the best. All right, Mayor. We'll certainly appreciate your time today, and stay safe. Thank you. All right. We have been talking with Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth about the Mauna Loa eruption. Stay tuned to HPR. We'll have the latest uh, from the eruption as it becomes available. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to Hawaii Island, Kauai, Maui, and Oahu, February 11th to the 18th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. A leading international organization focused on the Asia-Pacific is meeting in Honolulu this week. Senior officials of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum are holding an informal gathering to lay out plans for next year's APEC leaders meeting. The U.S. will host that summit next year in San Francisco, 12 years after President Obama hosted the leaders meeting here in Hawaii. Charles Morrison of the East-West Center played a key role in that meeting. He tells HPR's Bill Dorman this week's meeting in Honolulu is symbolic as the U.S. takes the rotating leadership position in APEC for the next year. And it's also symbolic in a way that it connects the end of the last U.S. chairship, which was in Honolulu with the beginning of this time's international chairship. It's also a time for the host country to kind of outline its goals for the for the year. The relative relevance of mm-hmm. APEC over yeah. the years seems to have shifted a bit. A trade and investment beginning, but certainly also a political aspect. Well, Bill, I, I think the origins was really, in a sense, political. To, kind of try to bind both sides of this huge blue continent. We're halfway around the world, you know, mm-hmm. and you think about Washington on one side, Beijing or Bangkok on the other side. And so it's a, it's a real stretch of imagination. APEC embraces four continents, or even five if you think about the European part of Russia. So it's, a, it's not really a region. It's a mega region. It's half the world. And then there was this, in the late 80s and early 90s, this kind of belief that at the end of the Cold War, we could move forward in in a free trade and capital flow era to really promote globalization, and it was going to be beneficial to to all of us. 
I think a lot of that was hubris, and in the end, it turned out to be a lot harder than we thought. The funny thing is, I think in some ways, when you're in a bad patch, and I would say we're in a bad patch in the region and in the world more generally, these regional institutions are needed more than ever. It's sometimes overlooked that APEC is one of the few international organizations that has as full and equal members both the People's Republic of China, Beijing, and the Republic of China, Taiwan. How significant is that? Well, it's it's actually very significant, except that in APEC speak, we never talk about the Republic of China. We always talk about Chinese, Chinese Taipei, Taipei, right? Yes. <laughs> and so, it's uh, to me, it's a kind of limitation, and it's a benefit and a limitation. The benefit is that there are 23 million people living in Taiwan. It's certainly our I mean, American belief, I think, that they deserve to all representation in, in the international world. It's kind of a limitation in the sense that political and security issues then are off the agenda in APEC. And that's a big part of, of the areas of tension. Now, of course, when leaders meet and ministers meet, even senior officials meet, some of those things may be on the side in the bilateral meetings and so forth. But as far as a multilateral agenda, that is occurring at the East Asia Summit, uh, an ASEAN-sponsored uh, activity People talk about the sidelines of events like this, but in some ways, at some gatherings, particularly at the leaders' meetings, yeah. the sidelines are almost more important than some of the main events. Well, one of the phrases I, I like to describe APEC, or at least the APEC leaders' meeting, is that it's speed dating for leaders. And it's an opportunity to, to do things simply because you're meeting. Before there was APEC, can you think of when the leaders of China, Japan, the U.S., met together in a summit. The reason mm. you can't is because it never happened. Mm. APEC, in fact, created a venue for leaders. Now there's more of those venues. The G20 is uh, another venue. Mm. But the main work of leaders is actually not the meetings together. It's the side meetings. And so every leader during probably two-thirds of his or her time is basically taken up in side meetings to deal with issues that are not multilateral APEC issues. So it's a very important activity to get things done. And I think what's happened in the last two years during the COVID crisis is the fact that we don't have these meetings has meant that the leaders aren't seeing each other and things have more of a tendency to get out of control. That was Charles Morrison of the East-West Center and HPR's Bill Dorman talking about the APEC, meet, APEC meetings in Honolulu and the growing tensions uh, throughout the Pacific. We will have more of that interview, including what would make U.S. leadership of APEC next year a success right after the break. Support for HPR comes from Ulu Ocean Grill and Sushi Lounge, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort, Hualalai, serving dinner nightly. Chef Nuri PCO features pan-Pacific dishes inspired by on-site and local island growers. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. With a selection of gifts, publications, jewelry, and handcrafted goods at the HOMA shop, all proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, open during museum hours. Thanks for sticking around for the conversation. The U.S. is taking over the rotating leadership of APEC next year, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. 
It begins with an informal meeting of senior officials this week in Honolulu. We continue the interview HBR's Bill Dorman did with Charles Morrison of the East-West Center about the chances for the U.S. to increase its impact in the region next year. The U.S. is kind of recovering from a period when it has uh, seemed to be less attentive to the Asia-Pacific than it was during the Obama presidency. Now, Obama was a very unique figure in that he had grown up here in Hawaii and had spent some early life in Indonesia, and so he, he had a feel for the region and an awareness of the region that is very rare among uh, U.S. leaders. President Trump seemed to have very little awareness um, he was engaged with the North Koreans for a while, but he just had no real interest, and he didn't like multilateralism. Biden, of course, is a, a foreign policy aficionado. Mm-hmm. Um, he has, he's been much more interested in, in Europe and the Middle East than he's been interested in Asia, but he's a globalist. And so um, I think he wants to be sure that the um, U.S. is properly engaged in this region. I think we'll see a, a lot of attention to APEC this year. I think there's lots of things where the U.S. has le- a leadership, and, uh, and it just has to work hard to exercise that and to, and to exercise it in the right way, which is not to try to force people along your agenda, but to work with them on trying to develop a cooperative joint agenda with some recognition for the constraints that we all face. In your ideal scenario of a successful APEC 2023, what would that look like? Okay, so to me, APEC is a long-term project. What you're trying to do, and and, and this is in in the very broadest sense, you're trying to create a sense of uh, an Asia-Pacific community that can work together and where war becomes unimaginable. We thought that had happened in Europe, and it has happened in Western Europe. So, you know, you think about France, Germany, England, Italy, even Canada and the U.S. in a transatlantic sense, two world wars in the first part of the 20th century. Now, no young person growing up in France or Germany or Italy would imagine their country at war with any of the others, you know. So that's the kind of uh, very idealistic goal that we we want to achieve. And the way to get there is a lot harder in Asia Pacific because the cultural differences are so vast in comparison. The geographical differences are vast. The differences in the places the economies are in, some very advanced like Singapore, Japan, United States, others at the most primitive level like Papua New Guinea. So you have a lot of things that you're trying to deal with. So to me, a good APEC meeting is one that um, reinforces the common agenda and, and keeps it going. And the common agenda, as I say, is it's still trade and investment, but it's a different way of looking at it, not in terms of traditional free trade agreements, but picking parts, like the digital economy, that is a new area and where we need rules, and we can all benefit by having established rules. But it's not the kind of world anymore where the U.S. and Europe can set the rules. Uh, We have to set them together with other powers, and so it's a very complicated process. And then another thing that I think is really important, and it's going to be a feature of the U.S. year, is inclusiveness. And so the U.S. kind of started that at the last its last chairmanship with a women's summit that Hillary Clinton held. This time, I think we're going to see a lot more attention to indigenous people, to immigrant groups, as, as to minorities in general. 
And so that indigenous and, and minority element and, and how that can be brought into the economy on an equal basis, that's a key agenda item. Charles Morrison, adjunct fellow, former president of the East-West Center here in Honolulu and a longtime participant in APEC meetings of all sizes and varieties. Thanks so much for coming in, Charles. Thank you for having me. time to talk about our fine feathered friends and we've got another little bird from the big island for you today here's university of hawaii at hilo professor patrick hart with your manu minute akia pola owl are large bright yellow honey creepers that act like woodpeckers they use their strong lower bill to peck holes in the branches of trees Then they use their long, curved upper bill to pry out the tasty insect larvae. There are less than 2,000 of these birds left, mainly because of habitat loss and mosquito-transmitted avian malaria. And nowadays, their song can only be heard in high-elevation koa forests on the Big Island, where it's too cold for mosquitoes. In addition to controlling mosquitoes, planting koa forests would be a great way to increase populations of this very rare and important species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at mobi.com. 2023 marks 20 years since a salt farm on Molokai got started. It now operates as the Hoikai Corporation. President and CEO George Joseph oversees the company from its California offices. It focuses on bulk sales of its Soul of the Sea label, and clients include high-end restaurants and spas on the mainland. The company employs a handful of full-time employees and some part-time workers on Molokai during the summer, and it's been able to scale up its operation during, uh, using patented technology. It involves a water purification rapid evaporation process that produces a chunky salt. During the pandemic, Hoikai suspended its retail operation, but hopes to resume that soon. It has three locations on the Friendly Isle, as well as a federally certified facility in California. We talked to Joseph recently about how the company got started and its plan for the future. Hoikai's salt company was started by a gentleman from mainland called Kent Clampett. And he is very much into culinary art, and he has an extremely sensitive discerning palate. He knows the difference between good taste and bad taste. So he and his wife, Peggy, was touring Molokai and he came across this small salt making process. And when he tasted that salt, he found something really extraordinary. So then what he did is 
he said he wanted to develop a process because he's an engineer by profession, a process engineer. So he put his own money, a lot of money, and then he developed a system by which he can make the best salt, the best pure, pure salt in a large quantity with the limited space that we have in the island of Molokai. That was his goal. Mm-hmm. So what he did is, first he found a spot where he can take the water between Lanai and Molokai, and he filtered that water because he wanted the best what is given by the nature and still wanted to take care of all the contamination possible. So he created a filter system. It goes through nine levels of filtration, microns, so 100 to 50 to 30 to 1, and carbon filter and everything. At the end of the line, he gets the purest filtered ocean water. That is the first step. Second step is he concentrated that water by reverse osmosis and a proprietary technology that he developed. Concentrated water, that means less quantity of water can make more salt. Then the next step is he created a system called solar sealed evaporation technique, which is nothing but a completely sealed container, many containers, hundreds of hundreds of containers. And you put a tray in it, and uh, he created a very nice network for piping system so that without touching this pure water, we can plumb this water into this tray. And you put it into this tray inside this solar seal container with a glass top, and the sun will do the job evaporating it. And because of the shape and everything of this solar seal evaporator container, the heat inside will be a little more intense than the sun. So what happens? We get most pure Hawaiian white sea salt with everything nature has given. Only 80% of sodium chloride and 20% all the minerals and electrolyte that nature has put into the ocean. And because it is all sealed and only the glass top is on the top, all the airborne pollutant is avoided. So what we get is complete or whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole salt, purest white Hawaiian whole salt. You mentioned that you're from India, you know, and that country is known for its spices. So what was it like when you tried this salt for the first time? What did you think? It was fabulous. It was something different. And any ordinary food, a simple burger patty or a simple fruit or a simple salad or a simple salmon, grilled salmon or anything, when you put the salt the taste comes out in a different way, in much better way. And that's what I felt. And the reason I got into the company is I am by profession a CPA. I was a CFO. I was brought into the company by the board of directors because when Ken started it, he convinced some rich people in Orange County to invest along with it. They were all CEOs of big companies. So they brought me in to do the operation. That's how I came in. But I tell you, I fell in love with the salt. I fell in love with Hawaiian culture. 
and I enjoyed it. And I canceled all our appointment, and I took it as a full-time job. So tell us, I mean, you've been able to scale up this process, and you now sell Molokai salt in bulk. Yes. The reason we could scale up was the technology that can develop and how we can evaporate the salt without having a large area. First is concentrating the water, purifying the water, concentrating the water, then putting that into an environment where it can be evaporated faster. You don't need six months or eight months to evaporate the water. We can do it in a few weeks. And that's how we could scale up the production. And once we scale up the production, the next thing is it has to be perfectly food grade and should be approved by FDA standard. So then what we do is we pack everything in Molokai, which is certified by the health department of Molokai, our operation and our facility. Then we bring that to uh, FDA approved facility in Southern California, which has all the highest quality standard which the whole world wants. For example, we have the SQF level 2 certification, and it is all run by under HACCP. So we bring it there, and we do the sifting, because what we get in Molokai is very chunky salt. We do sifting and grinding and blending and packing. And most of our customers are on the mainland, Europe, Japan, Australia, and even South America. So it is easy for us to ship products from mainland to our customers. So that's how we scale up. And you're right, we sell it in bulk. Our main business is selling our bulk salt, black salt, red salt, green salt, pink salt, white salt, lemon salt, mock salt. And those are our main products. When we're talking about bulk products, I mean, you're talking 5-pound, 40-pound bags of salt. Yes, we sell it in 40-pound carton. We sell to high-end restaurants, and we sell to distributors of high-quality salt, and we sell to high-end spice makers, and the salt is also used in personal care products. So we sell to spas and other personal care product manufacturers. I noticed on your website that due to the pandemic, you put a pause on your retail line. Yes, you are absolutely right. We put a hold on to our retail production because the fulfillment of retail was difficult. And uh, we stopped doing that and we concentrated on the bulk product. And the biggest accolade we get is from chefs. This, they take our salt and they use it on their product and said they have never seen, never tasted anything like this. We feel very proud of that. And uh, many people from France and uh, Germany and Japan and Colombia and Australia, when they taste our salt, they feel something different. They feel something very unique about our salt in terms of consistency, taste, and everything. And we feel very proud of that. We have been hearing from George Joseph of Hawaii Corporation. It's a company that produces salt on Molokai going on two decades now. So what lies ahead? Well, the company hopes to resume its retail operation with plans to hire additional full-time and part-time workers. Got salt? Well, tomorrow we continue our salt series with a trip to a Kona salt farm.